I joked with Steve that uh, I was a youth pastor for years and years, and even before that as an adult leader. So um, I think I've spent over like 12 summers at NTS camp, if not more. And I was like, Steve, you need another, you know, male leader to go. Uh, I'm your guy. I still got some outfits. I'm sure I can maybe fit into them. Um, and then uh, I remember joking with my wife being like, hey, like, I, you know, I think I should go to NTS camp. And she's like, hey, what kids are you bringing with you? Um, and I was like, never mind. I don't think I'm going to NTS camp anymore. Uh, but I'm excited for Steve and the team to head out to NTS camp tomorrow and uh, what God is going to do. I, I truly believe, like Steve said, we, we really believe in this camp. We believe in what God does there um, and what he is going to do in this coming week as well. And so I want to join you in, in praying for them each and every day that God would radically encounter them at camp. Uh, I know and I believe and I've seen the power of camp. And so it's something that we get to do uh, back home here as the church, as our students are there and what God is doing there. And so um, please join me in that this coming week. Um, and maybe like most of you, how many of you guys remember, uh, this is probably more for like my millennials, but like, come on millennials, right? I remember waking up on Saturday mornings and watching TV shows as I ate breakfast. Anybody else, right? Come on, right? One of those TV shows that I remember growing up, and it was like one of those like core memories, was Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Anybody else remember Mr. Rogers? Did you all know they remade that? That's like Daniel Tiger now. What in the world? Come on. Uh, but Mr. Rogers had that iconic cardigan sweater. It was that moment where all of us started to struggle with, like, do I need a cardigan or do I not? Right? I've never wore a cardigan in my life. I sweat too much. Okay? But he was always this gentle and easygoing. His tone was so peaceful. Uh, he was like the complete opposite of me. And he was just so loving and calm all the time. And I remember growing up and watching him, and he was the best type of neighbor, right? He was a neighbor you wanted. He always checked in on you. He was always so friendly. He also was just so lovable. And as you grew up, maybe like me, as I grew up, I remember then watching some other shows. I kind of grew out of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, I felt like. And then there was this Tim the Toolman Taylor, right? <laughs> Come on, somebody. And his, his neighbor only had like half of a face. And that was borderline creepy, if we're going to be honest, right? But that's a whole nother sermon. We're not going to talk about Wilson here, okay? But then, as you grew up a little bit more even, there was that legendary neighbor. And you could almost hear the, the, the shout of Eric as he said, Feeney, come on. Like, I loved it. Mr. Feeney. Boy meets world. He was the, pre the, the principal who lived next door. I would have hated that. <laughs> My mom would have hated that for me, right? Like the principal of your school lives next door. It's like the worst case scenario, right? But he was, he was so kind. And you knew that if you ever got in trouble, Feeney was right there and you could always talk to him. He'd always give you great advice. And he was dependable. Neighbors. We all have them, but I guess the question that I wrestled with this morning is, do we truly recognize them? Do we truly know them? I mean, sure, you might know who is on the left or the right of your house or even across the street, but do you truly know them as your neighbor? 
I mean, it's easy for us, right? Like if your neighbor came and knocked on your door and said, hey, I, I need a cup of sugar. Can I, can I get a cup of sugar or a few eggs? Like that's, that's no big deal at all. Like here you go. Or, or if their car is broken down and it's pouring rain, it's not a big deal for you to go out and help them push it into the garage. There's, there's even moments where neighbors and sometimes maybe there's life and death situations where you have to step in and help. How do you respond to knowing your neighbors? And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we live in a culture that actually doesn't recognize and know our neighbors truly. We know them on the external. We know who they are, and we might know even what car they drive or, or some of their sports team based on the, the flags they fly, but do we truly know our neighbors? What makes them tick? What disrupts them to the core? What about how do they view you in the neighborhood? Do they know you? I think we live in a culture and we're coming up probably in this fall again with all these lovely things called elections where, where some people in our neighborhood will care more about who we vote for rather than where we are spending eternity. That's a harsh reality for our culture. But when we sit with that reality, there's probably a chance that we might even be included in that. What I want to ask this morning and chase after is very, very simple, but I think it's very impactful. And it's a simple question, and it's this. It's, do we bear the burdens and the weight of the struggles with those around us, or do we just desire to shoulder our own? Do we bear the burden and the weight, the struggles of those around us, or do we just simply desire to shoulder our own? We're going to be looking at this whole summer, we're looking at parables, the, the kingdom culture of God. And so as Jesus talks about uh, parables and stories, he talks about them in this illustrations. And, and this one is no exception. So it's one that many of us probably have heard before, or, or maybe we've even kind of thought about a little bit. It's the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's a pretty well-known one. We're going to be in Luke 10 today. So if you have your Bible, go on and flip open to it. Or if you have your phone, go on and Type in Luke 10. Um, if you have a Bible, uh, it is on page 1,403. If you have exactly the same Bible I do. <laughs> My guess is you don't. But I got mine. So that's, that's good news for all of us right now. And this is what it says. We're going to kind of start off and it's good. we're going to kind of break it up into kind of two chunks and a little bit in between. Sound good? Yeah. Awesome. Even if it didn't, that's what we're doing because it's in my notes. Here's what we say. Here we go. Luke 10. 25 through 29, one day an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, well, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, and all of your strength and all of your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. The man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? This is where we're going to pause. We see Jesus here chatting it up and engaging with a, almost this uh, expert in the law, this, this lawyer almost. And, and it says right away, like he stood up to test Jesus. Bad move, bro. Like this is God. He stood up to test Jesus, and as he 
is standing there. He asks Jesus a very simple question. What must someone do to inherit eternal life? I mean, if we're, if we're really being honest, I think all of us have asked that question. Like, what do I got to do? What do I have to give up? What do I have to figure out? What do I have to give to get this in return? What do I have to do for someone, for me, you, to get eternal life? Eternal life. A lot of times we have this idea that it's this timeline type of thing, right? If you're looking at like the Marvel universe, whatever it would be called, it's like this infinite possibilities, right? Like it's this timeline though, from start to end. And where does eternity fit into that? I found this on the way. <laughs> we, are, we are so done with Siri, okay? So done. I even put it on water mode so it wouldn't do it this morning. Ah, man. Got Apple Watch for sale. Um, eternity. Eternity. That is like horrible timing. Eternity. We see it as this timeline, but I think in reality, it's, it's this false idea we have of even a timeline. I think for me, when I started to wrestle with this, it's, it's the fact that we are not just in the presence, but it's also the reality that we are sitting in the glory of God and time doesn't even matter anymore. We try to, we try to quantify it. We try to say, oh, it's X amount of years or it's X amount of time. But what if eternity is so good and it's so eternal is because there's nothing that can even compare to just being in the presence of God every day, all the time, with not missing a simple second of his glory. And so as his lawyer says, like, what do I got to do to get to that? Jesus' response is, is well, what does the law say? You, you would have grown up with the law. You would have known it. And he recites the, the Shema, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. The, the lawyer doesn't miss that last part. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's something that good Jews would have grown up knowing. They would have grown up to take care of each other as we do ourselves, to love, to care for, and watch out. I mean, essentially, if you go back and look at Exodus, the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments basically sum up in those things, right? Like half our love God, pursue God, and then the other half our love your neighbor, love each other. So he says what Jesus understands and what Jesus fully knows. Yes, like you must love God and love others. But there's still a tension here, and it's right there in verse 29. So who is my neighbor? Who, who is my neighbor? Who is our neighbor? It starts to dig a little deeper. I mean, how do I see the world when I look all around me? How do I perceive it? Who is God moving and calling me into an intentional moment or opportunities to be a neighbor, to be a friend with? What does that even mean for you and I? I think for so long we've been chasing after that, after that same question. Well, who is our neighbor? We're not trying to maybe test Jesus in that like this lawyer would be, but we're, we're asking the same question. Who is my neighbor? How do I understand this? How do I define this? And I think well, for me, this it's so interesting, this passage, not just the Good Samaritan, but... There's a passage that I have just been absolutely dwelling on for a while. And it's found in 1 John 4. 
In 1 John 4, if you flash forward, we learn more about what it means for us to love one another and to care for one another. We're gonna, 1 John 4, verse 7, this is what it says. Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. And anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. If you look at verse 8, but anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Anyone who knows God is a child of God. It's intriguing that as, as John here is, is, as he's writing this, the Greek word for know is not, it translates knowledge by experience. So essentially what he's saying is when we experience God's love, when we walk and operate in God's love, then we show it through the love of our neighbors, the people around us. And it's not exclusionary. It doesn't say uh, the neighbors that agree with us or the neighbors that look like us or the neighbors that only wear Nikes, right? It says our neighbors. Like if you know God, you, you love one another. And we can't grow in our experience with God if we don't take it seriously to love our neighbors. He, he would continue on and it... it, it it continues on, verse 20 through 21. This is what it says. If someone says, I love God, but hates a fellow believer, that person is a liar. If we don't love people we can see, how can we love God whom we cannot see? And he has given us this command. Those who love God must also love their fellow believers or their neighbors. I love that John calls it out very blatantly and bluntly. It's easy to say it, but it's extremely hard sometimes to live it out. It's much harder. And we're told that if we don't do this, then we're liars. If we love God, we must love our brother, we must love our neighbor. And the excuse that I cannot love them is junk. It's junk. And I know it, I get it, trust me. We live in a culture that wants to pit us against everybody else. It wants to make this dynamic that the world is out to get us everything. And God is saying like, are you loving like I love? Are you walking as I have walked? If you even go back and look at that parable as it continues on in verses 30 through 35, Luke 10, this is what it says. So Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along. And when he saw the man lying there, he crossed the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there. But he also passed by on the other side of the road. Then a despised Samaritan came along. And when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil, olive oil and wine and bandaged them. He put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. And if this bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. We see the religious elite, the ones who have it all together, the ones who would have stood up on stage, the one who wear the nice suit and tie, the ones 
who everybody respects, they're the religious ones. And they see the man on the side of the road and they cross to the other side. They ignore him. Somebody else's problem. I mean, you can imagine they have all the excuses, right? It's, it's just too dangerous for me to stop on this road and help this man. What if it's a trap? What if he's with them and if I help him, they're going to do the same thing to me. They're going to beat me up. He's too far gone. It's not even worth my time. One that gets me, I actually have somewhere to be. I'm so sorry. He would have all the excuses. The, the religious elite, the priest and the temple assistant, they would have the excuses. They could have had any number of excuses. They cross the other side and they continue on their way. How many times do I do this in my life? How many times do you do this? I mean, it may not look like a guy beaten up on the side of the road. It might be the man panhandling at the corner of Alpine and Target right there. It might be the foster kid who just needs a weekend home for, for just a few days. It might be a single mom looking for just a helping hand to get some, some stuff done around the house. It might look like an elderly widow just sitting and seeking someone to talk to and to just be around for just a moment. It might be a neighbor struggling to make day by day. It just might be someone right next to you, someone you drive by every single day. It might be somebody right beside your very own house. And then Jesus says, the Samaritan comes. He's talking to an audience of Jewish people mostly. And he says, a Samaritan man comes. Despised Samaritan. The Samaritans and the Jews had this deep, deep hatred towards each other. And, it, and he goes on to say, like, the Samaritan man helps him. This is the complete opposite of what the people would be thinking in Jesus' day. The hate and the despisement between the Jews and the Samaritans goes so deep and so profound. It'd be essentially as if Ben Shapiro's on the road and like Dylan Mulvaney comes and helps him. It's complete opposite. It doesn't make sense. And here Jesus is and he goes... That's who helps him. That's who helps him. He took care of him. It says he used his own goods, wine to help cleanse the wound, and oil to soothe the wound and ease the pain. He puts him on his animal, which would mean that the Samaritan now is walking. He used his own money, the coins, his own silver, to pay for the innkeeper to take care of him and let him rest. And he said, if it gets above whatever this cost is, I'll come back and pay more. Do we understand the reality that the Samaritan goes above and beyond what was ever asked of him? And yet we sit here and it's the age old question. It's the question we're going to ask today is who are the neighbors? Who are the neighbors? Charles Spurgeon, when he reflects on this parable, he says, when we see an innocent person suffering as a result of the sin of others, our pity should be excited. We should get excited at an opportunity to love and live as Christ in that moment. 
when we see people who we can step in and just show God's radical love to them, we should get excited. The reality of people desire to be treated as people, not projects. When we value others, they see you and others through Christ's eyes and his love. How are we doing with this? How are we doing with this? We have so many opportunities, not just within our four walls, but externally as well, to literally put this in practice. Today is a, a food pickup for our pantry. So there will be people after service today coming and picking up food right in our front door because they're just food insecure right now. It's a literal physical way to be a neighbor. There's kids waiting for biological families to sort things out. Hear me on this. I know I might hit this drum really, really hard. I get it. I'm not going to stop. Because there are foster kids, I can't tell you how many times, there are foster kids who just are seeking somebody to look at them and say, it doesn't matter how messed up and screwed up you may feel you are, you are radically loved by Heavenly Father, and I just want to show you that love. There's chances to be a neighbor. There's community members needing help at their house. There's, there's people in our community right in Westgate neighborhood, right across the street. They, would just, they just need some help. Maybe something has happened to them or, or a spouse, and, and they can't mow their lawn right now. They just need a neighbor to knock on their door and say, hey, I don't know what's been going on. I just see your lawn, you know, is, is, it could just use a good mow. Can I do that for you? Can I, can I help you? Hey, I saw your, your husband just went in and he came home in a wheelchair and I know it's probably really hard to get him in and out of the house. Can I help build a deck or a ramp? It's a chance to be a neighbor. There's unfair and unjust situations happening all around us. It's a chance to be a neighbor, to step in the gap. There's broken relationships, broken humanity in our world. It's a chance to be a neighbor. The question is always, who is our neighbors? And in order for us to step in the gap, that means loving as Christ and sharing the burden of each other. Sharing the burden. In this parable, as he's asking, like, who is our neighbor? Like, what do you do in this situation? There is a reality that there's over 600 Jewish laws. And so they're trying to keep them all straight. And so it's almost this trick of like, well, what one is higher priority? Like, can I, if my, if my neighbor's cart breaks on the side of the road and it's on the Sabbath, can I stop and help them get the cart out? Because I can't work on the Sabbath. But like, you're, I'm supposed to love my neighbor. What one is the highest? And Jesus just blatantly points it back to two things. He's basically saying, you want to know what the highest priority is? Love God and love others, period. Love God and love others. He points directly to the answer. And it's the easy thing to do when we see someone in need to help them out. But the majority of the time when I look at my life, I do a quick calculation. Anybody else? Okay, hang on. If I help this dude, it's going to take me approximately 10 to 15 minutes. If I give 10 to 15 minutes, can I still make my dinner reservation or will I be late? Okay, 
this guy needs a little bit of help with this. If I give him a couple bucks, do I still have enough money for blank? We do this quick calculation. How much is it going to cost me? Can I still make my dinner reservation? Can I still afford to do this? Is this going to make me too uncomfortable that I'm not actually going to open my door or wind down my window and have a conversation? Last time I checked, Jesus didn't say anything about doing things the easy way, though. He liked to mix things up. He wants us to do the things his way. Again, it's that question. Do we bear the burden? Do we bear the burdens and weight of struggles with those around us? Or do we just shoulder our own? When it comes to practically doing this, I'm humbled to remember. I'm humbled to remember that there are zero ways to love God and not love one another. There's zero ways. Over and over and over again that this parable is easy for us to sit and to think that we are the Samaritan person. That we're supposed to be that person. Which to a point is correct, yes. But before we can be that Samaritan person, I'm the one that's broken. I'm the one that's beaten. I'm the one that's needed help. And the Samaritan person was Jesus who came and who picked me up, put me on his own horse, attended my wounds, took care of me. In order for me to operate and to live as, God, as God's love in this world, I have to remember that Christ first did it for me. I can't operate in this realm out of the love of God if I never have experienced that and if I forget that. Are we called to be the Samaritan in our world? Absolutely. But first, first, we have to remember that God came, paid a radical price, much more than two silver coins, for our lives, for our brokenness, for our beat up selves, so that we can show his great love to this world. And there's so many people in our community that are seeking some neighborly love. I can't help but think back to my buddy, Mr. Rogers. There was one Saturday morning where Mr. Rogers almost got fired. And it's from this episode right here. It was May 9, 1969. Officer Clements was a man who was regularly on the show. And it, it was seen multiple times in different episodes where Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers, and Officer Clemens would have just conversations, friendly conversations. And then this episode came, and they were filming the episode. And, and as part of that, Fred Rogers said, oh, you know, Officer Clemens, it, it's, a, it's a really warm day outside. And Officer Clemens says, yes, sir, it really is. And Fred, sitting in his pool, says, why don't you come over here and sit in the pool with me? I, I got another chair. 1969, that was not supposed to be happening. And when he invited him to sit in the pool, you could almost see if you watch uh, the footage that Officer Clemens was a little hesitant because he's like, what in the world are you doing, Fred? And Fred knew exactly what he was doing. He had a little smirk on his face. I love that Mr. Rogers, I would love to say that Mr. Rogers taught me a little bit of some defiancy. You know what I'm saying? And as Officer Clemens sat 
next to Fred Rogers, and they sprayed their feet down with, with the hose. It was this moment of flipping the script. This moment where Fred Rogers totally flipped the cultural script. He modeled to kids all over what it meant to be a neighbor. Regardless of, the wor- of what the world was saying, regardless of what culture was saying, it's a really warm day out, Officer Clemens. Why don't you come sit and enjoy the pool with me? He modeled what it meant to be a radical neighbor when others run from it. Many of these, uh, many of us have the same chance in our lives. Many of us have the same opportunity where we can radically model what it means to be a neighbor. As we close today, as uh, Katie comes up, I don't want to miss a chance to, to share that for many of us, we have this chance. There's a local ministry called Foster the Family Grand Rapids. Right now, there are hundreds and hundreds of kids in foster care. And as they get removed, they have basically five minutes to grab clothes. And whatever you grab in a trash bag or sometimes a suitcase is what you go with. And that's it. And so try to think about if if you got removed in the fall or winter time, you're grabbing all of your pants and your jeans, and you're not thinking that you'll still be in this foster home come June or July, and now it's June, and it's 90 degrees outside, and you don't have shorts. It's a chance to be a neighbor as a church. Some of the biggest needs right now in the foster care organizations are shorts and tees for kids in adult sizes, especially for boys and young men. There's a huge need in the foster care community for respite care. It's a weekend where foster parents can just simply breathe. It's a weekend where kids come in with trauma and brokenness and they just need another loving home where they can spend a few days at so the foster parents maybe can get away. Court and I have done respite care uh, two times. It was before we had all four kids. We only had two at the time. And we did foster care one time. It was for a four-year-old girl and her one-year-old sister, as well as for a five-year-old girl and her three-year-old brother. Both times were radically different. I've never met a five-year-old who was fluent in the F-bomb until that moment. But here's the beauty in what we saw in respite care. We got to meet these little kids and just love on them. They got to jump on a trampoline and have popsicles. They got to run around with our boys and be crazy. The three-year-old boy has never had a brother. He couldn't wait to have a sleepover with Kenny and Cash. There's ways for us to be a neighbor in the foster care community. There's ways for us to be a neighbor in the Westgate neighborhood community across the road. We're working on trying to put together a list of just people in that neighborhood who could just use an extra helping hand. Mowing the lawn, upkeep of some landscaping, helping to build a ramp maybe, helping to tear out old deck boards and put new ones on. 
Our party in the park is a strategic moment for us to simply just go into that neighborhood, that community, and say, hey, we just want to be here to love. Can I share with you, like, as a pastor, like, we do those events. My desire is not that that whole neighborhood would just come and flood these seats and grow our church. My hope is, is that that neighborhood would see the radical love of Jesus because of God's people going in that community and just loving the junk out of them, caring for them. It's not about our castle. It's always been about the kingdom. It's always about the kingdom. And I think we have an opportunity to be a neighbor to that neighborhood, that community. Over and over, I've been reminded as I've been studying and preparing for this Sunday that there is, I will never look into the eyes of someone that God does not love. Do I love as God loves? Do I love as God loves? To serve as God serves. Our, our goal has always been that we'd be a beacon of hope, a beacon of God's light to this community and neighborhood. And that we would never become a country club or a place where people go to just check a box on a Sunday morning. That's why groups matter. That's why discipleship matters. That's why kids' ministry and youth ministry matters. That's why we have, every Tuesdays and Thursdays, AA and NA that meets in our building. Because it's not about us growing our castle. It's always been about the kingdom. And people go to those meetings on Tuesday and, and Thursday night, and they find freedom from addictions. God is on the move. The question is, are we willing to join him in the work that he's doing and become the neighbor that he's calling us to become? There's someone in your neighborhood who has the weight of the world on their shoulder who just needs to know that God is on their side and that you are on their side. So would you bring them with you? Would you walk with them? Would you love on them? And would you care with them, for them? Everything. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we know that you are stirring. We know that you are moving in this area and in this community. And so simply what I ask is that you would just continue to invite us into those opportunities and those moments where, where you are working already. I ask that you would just lift our eyes up to see those opportunities. And God, I ask that you would allow us to see people as people, as, as your children, not as projects to fix or things to get done and boxes to check, but, but as your beloved child. who just needs to be reminded that there is a God who loves them so very much that he would send his only son to die for them. And God, as you open up those opportunities, would you give us the boldness and the courage to step in, to lean in? As your Holy Spirit is present and moving and stirring, that we would be sensitive to your leading, sensitive to your promptings, that you would tune our ears and our hearts and our, our minds to you and only you. So Lord, we just simply ask that your kingdom come and your will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. In that when people experience radical moves of you in your presence, Lord, that all the glory and all the honor and all the praise would go back to you. It would be nothing of us, nothing of our limelight or spotlight, Lord, but rather it would all go back to you. So, Lord, we just simply come before you and we submit to your will, submit to your plans. And we ask that as you reveal our neighbors to us, Lord, that we would just overflow with your love. And so in all things, Lord, we just simply ask today, tomorrow, each and every day, come Holy Spirit.